Most of you were here um, back in December whenever I had expressed to you um, that I had a desire to kind of turn our focus for a little bit from Mark's gospel to kind of put the study that we had for about two years going there in Mark's gospel, to put that on pause for just a little bit and to turn our focus to some particular doctrines or some particular teachings from Scripture. And I want to do this because as a pastor, it's part of my duty and my calling before God to try to help equip his saints for the work of the ministry, as Ephesians 4 says. And sometimes I think that requires just some focused attention on some specific areas of biblical teaching. And one area that the Lord has laid on my heart we might refer to as the doctrine of the church. What does the Bible teach about the church? If you were here last week, that sermon kind of functioned as the intro to that doctrinal teaching. Because what we were looking at is we were looking at the importance of the church. We saw that um, the church is important for a host of different reasons, but I believe we brought up six of them. The church is important because, one, Christ died for it. Two, that Christ cares for it as his own body. Three, that the apostles gave their lives for it. Four, Jesus promised to build it himself. Five, God is demonstrating his manifold wisdom through it. And then six, Jesus is going to return to get it, his church. So to say that the church is very important to God would be an understatement, right? And the main takeaway point last week was if God so cherishes his church and puts so much focus on it in his redemptive plan, then we, likewise, ought to also cherish it and give our lives to its work and to its mission, given our time and effort and talent and money and focus, you name it, all those are appropriate. So today, <clears throat> we're going to look at the church from a slightly different perspective. So having talked about the importance of the church, we're going to ask now, what exactly is the church how did the church come to be? Or another question, who's a part of it? So the first thing I'll say is I think that we ought to acknowledge there are a lot of different ideas floating around about what the church is, right? Let me just name a few. And these aren't necessarily... Ideas from Christians, some are, some not. Just any ideas that people have when they hear the church, what are they thinking of? Some think it's merely a building, right? A church building, that's the church. Some think of it as a meeting. I went to church today, right? Others think of it as an organization. They just view it as, a, you know, one manifestation of organized religion. And for some people, that means they're not interested, right? Some people think of the church as this organization that prides itself on giving people platitudes and various life advice. 
Others just see it as a group of just plain weird people who meet on Sundays to do weird things like sing together and who sometimes, to our shame, act differently on Sundays than they do other times during the week. Then there are those who just think that the church is like this benign, harmless, fairly inconsequential thing that's on the fringe of society that some people are into is kind of a hobby, but it really has no bearing on anything important, and most normal people don't have anything to do with it. Then there are those who do see a certain value in the church, but they really can't put their finger on why it's valuable other than they were raised in church and they seem to turn out okay. I remember listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg, and in one of his sermons, he shared this little comic strip, and I want to describe it for you now. I don't have it in front of me. I wish I could share it visually with you, but I'll have to describe it to you. He found it at some point in his ministry of a man and a woman. They're sitting down with their son, and they're saying to him, well, son, we think it's time for us to start attending church as a family. And the son says, church, church is boring. And the parents say, well, we thought you might say that. All kids think it's boring. Didn't you think church was boring when you were a kid, mom? Well, yeah, I hated going to church when I was a kid, but it was good for me. My, my parents made me stick to it. And if you're going to hate it too, you got to put in the pew time and come to that feeling honestly. And then the son says, but mom... What if I like it? And the mom has this confused look on her face like, what do you mean? And then the mom says, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. In other words, there's no way you're going to like it, but we know that it's good for you in some vague sense. And so, just suffice it to say that there are a host of different opinions and impressions and ideas of what the church is, isn't there? But <clears throat> we're not here today to discuss merely the varying opinions of man about what the church is or what it looks like from the outside or what it seems like from some certain perspectives. We're here to look at the Scriptures and to see what the Bible says about the church, right? What we're going to find in the Scriptures, among other truths about the church, is this. That the church, you see it on the screen, is an institution of divine origin. That's going to be our focus today. The church is divine in its origin... It's divine in its makeup, who's in it. It's divine in its power, and it's divine in its progress or growth. And we could probably make our outline that if we wanted to and kind of make a little sermon outline out of it, but I, I want to look at it a little more generally that the church is of divine origin. So let's think about that in context with the questions that I asked earlier what is the church, 
and who's in the church. And as a starting place, I want you to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1. The book of 1 Corinthians is a Holy Spirit-inspired word, a Holy Spirit-inspired epistle or letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, the city of Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. And it's called 1 Corinthians because there's two different letters to them, 1 and 2 Corinthians. But we're going to look at something he says right at the opening of this letter. Let's read together. You follow along as I read it. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 3, paying special attention to verse 2. Okay, This is the word of the living and true God. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty cool that in the greeting alone, we get sort of a mini lesson on what the church is. Did you notice that? The apostle first dress, addresses them as the church of God that is in Corinth. But then he goes on to expound upon what that means. First of all, is he writing to an inanimate church building? No. You don't write letters to buildings. You write letters to people. And so the church is made of people. But what kind of people? Religious people? Spiritual people? People who like to sing? People who fancy themselves as moral people? No. Paul first describes them this way. They are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? The word sanctified is a good word. It means set apart for holy use. Set apart for holy use. We often use the word sanctification. And by that, we mean this ongoing progressive work that God does in his people to make them more like his son, the Lord Jesus, as they become more submitted to his lordship under the instruction of God's word. That is sanctification. That's the process of being set apart for God. And we do see that word used that way in the Bible. But if we just talk about the basic meaning of the word sanctify, it means what I said earlier, set apart for holy use. So who is this group of people that God calls the church? It is a people who have been set apart for holy use. 
By whom? Who set them apart? Themselves? Did these people one day decide that I think I'll set myself apart for God's holy use? No. Let me read you a verse that's found later in this same letter. This is in chapter 6 and verse 11. This comes after Paul has listed out several sins that characterize fallen sinners. Right after that list of sins, he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by who? The Spirit of our God. God sanctifies them. This is something God does. It's an act of God. And you're going to see why I've titled the sermon the way that I have. It's a reoccurring theme in this message that people are put into the church, not because they put themselves into it, but because God put them there by his sovereign grace. We see it in the very next phrase, chapter 1, verse 2, that we read. You have it in front of you. He says, the church is a people who have been called to be saints. I hope you have uh, decided to read your Bible in some methodical fashion in 2024. That's a great New Year's resolution to make, either to read it all the way through or maybe take a smaller portion and really study that smaller portion for a month or so and then move on or whatever plan you've got. It's a good thing to have. And what you and I are gonna find as we read through God's Word and we reread it every year and we study and we meditate and so forth, as you do that, you are going to see over and over again that Christians are referred to in the Bible as the called a lot. And we'll look at that a little bit further in just a minute, so put that thought on hold. But so far, the church is a set-apart people for holy use, called to be saints, called to be God's holy ones. But then what next? The apostle says they share a particular unity with everyone who worships Jesus. Notice how he puts it. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So you put all those things together and you have this mini explanation of what the church is. And that might not exhaust everything that could be said about the church in this one sentence, but it does contain a very good bit, doesn't it? It is a group of individuals set apart by God for holy use in Christ, called by God to be saints, in unity with every other person who calls upon and submits to the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the place, and we could add, no matter the era 500 years ago or today. That's the church. And we'll look later on, probably in a different message, about what the church actually does, but right now we're just talking about what it is, okay? 
And of course, we could probably condense everything that this verse is saying. It, it won't contain it in detail, but it will be a condensed, shortened version to just say this. The church is made up of God's redeemed people. That's it. God's redeemed people. If you are a Christian, you are part of the church, capital C, right? And there is a, a universal aspect to it, and there is a local aspect to it. And we'll look at that eventually as well, okay? But what I want to do is just look closer at this, um, this overriding aspect of what this verse just taught us. And we'll bring in other scriptures and supplement here. So here's the first of two overriding truths about the church that we're going to look at today. Number one, the church exists because God chose to save some sinners out of the world for himself. The church exists. Because God chose to save some sinners out of the world for himself. In other words, the reason the church exists is due to the saving act of God. The church exists because God is gracious. We might say it that way. The church exists because of God's mercy and desire to save for his own glory. No wonder that the apostle can write this about the church, God's redeemed people, where he says in Ephesians 2, 7 that the church is this demonstration of the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He could say that because that is why the church exists. It came to be because God chose to save people, right? So what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to get our minds wrapped around, it sounds so basic, but we need to think about it. If we trace the origin of the church back, 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 where did it come from? Back, go back, keep on going. It doesn't go back and stop with some group of people who were sitting around one day going, wouldn't it be cool to start up a church you know, wouldn't it be cool to have this gathering where we just come together and we worship Jesus? The church doesn't exist because some people said, let's make a church. The church exists because God said, I'm going to save some people. You see the difference? In other words, there wouldn't even be a group of people sitting around saying anything of that sort, if God hadn't chose to save people. There wouldn't even be any saved people to begin with in the world if God hadn't decided to demonstrate his grace and mercy to us. That was his choice. Therefore, the church, the church is an outworking of his grace and kindness. Titus 3.5 says this, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's why the church exists, because of his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
So that's the first thing I want to point out as far as the divine nature of the church. It literally, the church literally comes about because of God's good pleasure to save. So to reword again, let me say it like this. Trace the origin back to where the church came from and go past where we went earlier, past those people, past, go way back before the world even was created, and you're going to end up at the origin of the church in the mind of God himself. That is why it is divine in its origin. That is what I mean when I say that. I love this verse. We actually talked about it a little bit this past Wednesday in our Bible study, um, Isaiah 49, 6. This is God the Father speaking to his son, referred to in there as his servant. This is the Messiah, the one who would bring salvation to God's people. We know that to be Jesus Christ. But listen to what God the Father says to his son. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isn't that amazing? Basically, because God so loved his son and wanted to give him a people who would worship him and adore him forever from every tribe and every kindred and every nation, he says, because of that love, it's too small a thing for you to save just Israel. I'm going to give you the entire world, the nations, the Gentiles, and the Jews. So in that way, we might could say it this way. The church exists because God loves his son. The church is God's gift to his son. John 6 refers to Christians as people whom the father has given to the son. Listen to it. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 37. So, just think about that. If it weren't for the Father loving the Son and determining to give Him a people from all the nations, there'd be no church. And if it weren't for the Father sending his son to actually redeem those people by his blood, there wouldn't be a church. And if it weren't for the son being in perfect harmony with his father's will and saying, yes, I will go redeem them, Father. I will give my very life's blood for them. If it weren't for that, there'd be no church. And if it weren't for the Holy Spirit bringing people from spiritual death to to spiritual life and convicting them of sin and pointing them to the Savior, saying, there he is. You now see your problem, and there's your solution in Jesus. If it weren't for that, in this enlightening thing that the Holy Spirit does for us, again, there'd be no church. Do you see how divine the church is? 
The church doesn't exist because of us. It exists because of God. It's not our church. It's God's church, right? I told you we'd come back to that word calling that was mentioned there in 1 Corinthians 1, and that brings us to our second point this morning, second of two, which is the church is made up of individuals who have been called by God. So not only is the church a divine institution in the fact that it stems from God's gracious choice to save in general, but it's also divine in the sense that the specific people who make up the church are divinely placed into it by this powerful calling from God. And the way God carries out that calling is by bringing spiritually dead sinners to life. The Bible calls it being born again or regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says in that very next part, John 3, 5 to 8, he says being born again means being born of the Spirit. So who's part of the church? Who's in? It's the people who have been called by God from spiritual death to spiritual life. Let's talk about that calling just a little bit further. To be called by God, it doesn't merely mean that you heard someone preaching the gospel calling out to you, repent and be saved, or maybe over a lunch person shared the gospel with you or at work or your family member, whoever, and they called you to believe the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this verse is talking about. That's a general call that goes out everywhere. Come to Christ. Repent. Put your faith in him. He'll cleanse you, forgive you, give you eternal life, right? That's a general call. That goes out all the time from every faithful Christian's mouth as they are a witness to the gospel, right? To be called by God to be saints, though, as 1 Corinthians 1-2 said, means something different. It means that God has called you with a powerful, effectual, salvific, inward call that actually caused you to finally wake up to see spiritual realities. Just like Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come out. He called him. He does that in a spiritual sense for every Christian. Hey, Isaac, wake up. And I came to life spiritually. You may have heard the gospel a thousand times before you believed it. But that one time, right? That one time in the sovereign timing of God, it broke through your hard heart and it achieved exactly what God intended it to achieve. You came running to him in repentance and faith. And once you received that call, 
God then refers to you as the called, okay? Let me read you some examples in Scripture. In the opening of the book of Romans, the apostle refers to the church as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, Romans 1.6. And in the very next verse, called to be saints. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, which comes not too far after the verses we read together earlier, the apostle says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's that saying? You were called by God himself to be put into fellowship with Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? He called you, Christian, to be put into fellowship with Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.9 talks about God this way, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. You see there the, the parallel of the calling with being saved. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Wow. So this calling has to do with God's choice in eternity past as he purposes to give to his son a people who will worship and love him for all eternity. What about that awesome verse that we know well in Romans 8, verse 28, where we read these encouraging words? And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say two verses later in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Are you seeing again the divine nature of this calling? It is a calling to become an actual part of God's family and to receive all the blessings that come along with that from justification when you were first made right with God in an instant upon your faith in Him all the way through to eternity future when you are glorified, all that is yours because God worked in you and chose to do that. Wow. We could look at a ton of other examples in Scripture that deal with this calling, and we probably will at a future date. We'll focus really on that, but I just wanted you to see this point in general that the church is made up of individuals who have been called by God. People who have been saved by his sovereign grace. <clears throat> Maybe we should point this out too. To leave no loopholes, okay? And you can apply this to various areas and, and errors. We should say the church is made up exclusively 
of people who have been saved by God. Exclusively. Just up the road here, there's a little golf club that no one's ever heard of called Augusta National Golf Club. And from what I understand, no matter how much money or notoriety you have, you can't just wake up one day and decide, I think I'll join Augusta National. Apparently, from what I understand, you have to have an invitation extended to you. They have to call you to be their member, right? And although that analogy doesn't exhaust the full meaning of being called, it does at least illustrate the fact that you can't just say one day, I think I'll be part of the church. That's pretty cool what those guys are doing up there. I like the, the layout. I like the people. I kind of like the music. You know, it's not my first choice, but I kind of like it, you know. I think I'll be part of the church. And then, bam, you get your card or something and you're a member of God's church. No, that's not how it works. You must be called by God to be part of his church. He calls you. And how does that work itself out? Well, here's how it manifests itself in our actual experience. We hear the gospel, and something finally clicks. And we finally see what we didn't see before, that we are in great need of a Savior. Because we finally see, with extra clarity, how sinful we are before a holy God. And we hear the news that if I run to Christ for forgiveness, He'll pardon me. He shed his own blood on the cross to redeem every person who will ever come to faith in him or to come to him in faith. And we see that for the first time with crystal clear clarity and we have this desire to say, I want that. I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to submit to his lordship. I'm tired of this sin stuff. And you leave your sin behind and you go to Christ. That's repentance. You turn away from that sin. You don't love that anymore. You go to Christ. And when that happens, it seems like from our perspective that we found God. But in reality, the Bible says no one seeks after God. Romans 3 verse 11 the proper way to understand what just happened to that person in that scenario that I just laid out is God was seeking them. He opened their eyes. He's the one who did it. He opened their eyes. They finally saw. He gave them a new heart. He gave them the desire to come. And they came. And that's how the calling works in real time. And unless or until that happens, you can't place yourself into the church. God places you in his church. Do you see what I'm saying? The church is a divine institution, not just in the fact that it was thought up by him, 
And not just in the fact that it's only here because of God's saving act in Christ overall, but it's also divine in the sense that each and every member is divinely called into it in his timing and for his good pleasure. Why am I even emphasizing this today? Because I think before we can learn anything else about the church, we need to realize that it is not a human institution. It is not a human add-on to Christianity, a human add-on to the gospel. It is a divine institution. And so when we look at things in the Scripture, as we're going to do in the coming weeks, and we see God commanding us as a church to do certain things, well, then our minds ought to go, we dare not disobey this. This isn't our church. This is God's church. We better do what He says, right? So this is a primer for us to say, Lord, maybe I don't even know everything that... We're doing well or not doing well, but I want to find out and I want to do things well. I want to do what you've told us to do. And I pray that'll be our prayer as a church to say, we're not going to do things our way as if it's our church. We're going to do things God's way because it's his church. He made it and he put me into it, not to disobey him, but to be obedient, right? So in the coming weeks, we're just going to look at some of these things like what is the difference in the universal church and the local church? This is a local church, but we're part of the church, capital C, with Christians in China or Taiwan or wherever, right? What's the difference in those things and how do they work together? Where does church membership fit in in all this? If all I've got to do is be saved and I'm in the church, well, then why do people push church membership so much? Aren't I already in by God's divine action? How does that work together? What are our responsibilities as members of God's church? Do we have any? We'll look at all those things and probably more than what I'm just laid out there, probably more to it than that, but... We'll look at those things in this study. And let me just say, for those of you today who are hearing this on the internet or if you're here in this room and you find yourself today outside of the church of Christ, you're in this building, but you know that you're outside of the church, capital C. There is an invitation extended to you even now. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. And when you come to him, in the way that we described earlier, true repentance, you turn from your sin, you put your faith in Christ to say, I have seen, Lord, that no matter what I do, no matter how much good I think I can do, it's not enough to be pleasing to you or to get me into heaven. The only person good enough to be there is Jesus. 
And I can only come to be where he is if I'm in Christ, if I put my faith in him. And when you do that, he saves you. He forgives you. And he puts you into his church. And you have joy and peace because you've been forgiven. And your conscience is clear. And you have eternal life coming for you and so much more. But if you find yourself today being drawn to embrace Christ, praise God. That is an act of grace by God. It's exactly, he's doing exactly what we've described today. He's changing your heart. He's opening your eyes. And I say to you, come to him. Be forgiven Get eternal life through Christ. And if you have any questions, of course, we're here. After the service, during the week, whenever, call us. We'll talk. We'll help you. I hope this was helpful as at least a primer to what's coming later. Let's pray together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, your church would not exist apart from your saving grace in Jesus Christ. And so we just look to you this morning saying, thank you. Because of Christ, we can sing what we sang earlier and mean it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. We praise you, Lord, for your glorious work in forming your church and including us in it. We pray this in Jesus' name.